You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Hello friends, James Corbett here, CorbettReport.com. You are tuned into The Corbett Report on this 7th day of January 2013 for the inaugural edition of a brand new occasional podcast series called Questions for Corbett. And this series is exactly what it says on the tin. It is a space for me to answer some of the many, many questions that are coming in through the contact form on CorbettReport.com and to provide answers not only for you individually out there, but also for all the people out there in the audience who probably have similar questions. And I do get a lot of the same questions through that contact form. And as I'm sure you can appreciate, I get just too many emails to physically respond to them all. So instead, I'll, I'll take some of the questions that come in and I will respond them in this open forum so that we can all get them out on the table and discuss them together. So this series is going to be, I was going to originally make it and uh, on a set time schedule, like the first Monday of every month or something, but I realized that doesn't make any sense because of course it just depends on how many questions come in and what types of questions and when and how I can answer them. So this will be just an occasional series. Whenever there are enough questions to warrant a video, I will make one. So uh, that being said, uh, questions that are concise, engaging, relevant, answerable and respectful will receive priority in in this because obviously those are important qualities for questions to have when I'm going to be answering them like in this format. So having said all of that, I think that's it for by way of preamble. Of course, you can get your questions in via the contact form on CorbettReport.com and or you can leave questions in the comments of this video and or you can tweet them at Corbett Report. And as I say, I will do my best to answer the ones that are answerable when and as I can. But before we get into the questions and, and comments and all of that, let's just take a look at this. This is a, uh, a Christmas card that was sent to me by a listener in Germany, Gwen, who is a frequent correspondent, and she um, she sent this this in. Sometimes I get mail, and sometimes people send me copies of their books, etc., and things like that, but uh, this was particularly very nice. Nice to receive uh, a little holiday message. So thank you very much to Gwen for that, and to all of you for writing in. I really do appreciate the time that you guys take in corresponding with me, and this is my effort to give something back to all of you. So... Having said that, let's get right into the mailbag and let's get to our first question. First up, we have a question from Susan L. who writes, Did a particular issue or event act as an alarm? And if so, what was it? All right, Susan, very good question. And this is, of course, probably one of the most common questions that I ever receive. And of course, I understand why that is, because people want to know who a media person is and where they came from and their background and how they got into this. Everyone wants to know the waking up story, etc. So I have talked about this in particular on my website numerous times now, uh, not only in, in several different interviews, but of course in my podcast, specifically episode 163, as well as on the first edition of Corbett Report Radio, uh, which of course are both downloadable from my website. And also there's a video here on the 2009 video archive that I would recommend to people of myself uh, being interviewed by my friend Jamie Owens here in Japan, talking about the creation of the Corbett Report and how 9-11 started to get me into this information, etc., etc., etc. So all of that is there on the website for you guys. I hope you'll go and check that out for more detail on that. But 
How about answering it in a slightly different way? I've often told the story about moving into a new apartment in Japan and getting the internet for the first time in years, discovering YouTube, finding out about 9-11, etc. And I've told that story several times, but there's an, another story that I haven't told quite so often, which is a preparatory event that kind of acted like an arrow through the brain for me in waking me up, putting the light bulb off so that I understood what this encroaching police state tyranny really was about and why it was just so insidious, even if you have nothing to hide. And uh, this is a story I haven't told quite uh, nearly as much, and I did tell it in one of my subscriber-only videos. As you may or may not know, for uh, newsletter subscribers to The Corbett Report, I put out a subscriber-only video once a month where I just talk about some aspect of my life or something to that effect. And in one of those uh, newsletters last year, I talked about, well, an interesting story that happened to me at, uh, at the airport in Canada several months uh, before I ever started the Corbett Report that I think probably prepared me, sort of laid the groundwork for what was to become CorbettReport.com. But, uh, but at the beginning of 2006, I was here in Japan and I had to go back to Canada for my friend's wedding. I was the best man, so I had to go. And uh, so I went for just a one-week trip. It's, uh, it's not something I would advise people to do because I was uh, severely jet-lagged for that week, we'll say, and uh, basically part of the living dead. But, uh, but of course, it was great to see my, my friend's wedding and to be part of that. So I was going back for a week. And as I was coming from Japan into Vancouver to then go back to Calgary to, to go to my friend's wedding, I had to clear Canadian customs, so I was going through and being slightly, you know, uh, jet-lagged or whatever it is after sitting on a plane for eight or nine hours or however long it is, and then getting back to my home and native land in Canada and, and being able to speak English again to people randomly. That's, I mean, that's something you take for granted probably uh, wherever you might be, but, uh, but I certainly can't because I'm here in Japan. have to muddle through with my not-so-great Japanese. But uh, so I was whatever feeling uh, happy or whatever to be back home, and so I, uh, I made the mistake of joking around with the, the customs guy, and I, uh, he asked me what I was doing, and I said I was back to attend my friend's wedding and to, uh, to watch the Calgary Flames win the Stanley Cup. Ha ha ha. Because uh, he was in Van we were in Vancouver, Vancouver Canucks, Calgary Flames. If you're Canadian, you don't get it. But anyway, it's just a sports thing. And uh, he just sort of nods and makes a little scribble on my uh, customs declaration form that, uh, that I guess meant something like, this guy is flagged, and uh, gives it to me. So I go to get my bags, and as I'm waiting there, this uh, security woman comes up to me and says, uh, uh, I when you get your bag, you got to come with me. We're going to check you out or whatever. So I thought, oh, great. And at the time, I, was, I had a bit of a beard, so um, and I was a single man traveling alone with a beard. I mean, clearly, must be a terrorist. So, um, so I thought, well, okay, this is going to be interesting. So I get my bag, and we go into the their little back room where they have uh, people. I mean, they have the space for you to open up your bag, and they go through everything, and you put all of your underwear and everything out on the table for them to look through. Literally, looking through your underwear, lovely. And, uh, and so this woman was uh, going through my stuff, and it was, was bizarre. It was a bizarre, bizarre, bizarre experience, and not really what I was expecting. I was expecting them to go through all my stuff and find I didn't have any drugs or guns or anything, so, you know, okay, you can go. But, uh, but it was much, much stranger than that. It was them, it was this woman not only taking my stuff out, but going through each item 
to a bizarre extent where, for example, I was uh, on the plane, I was reading a, a Chuck Palahniuk novel. He wrote uh, Fight Club. He wrote some other books. I can't remember which one it was. Uh, not a particularly interesting one. And she takes a look at the book and the cover and, and looks at me and like, oh, do, do you enjoy this book? And she said it in kind of a meaningful way, like this answer is going to say something about me. And I'm just sitting there thinking, what? I don't... And so I just tried to answer as honestly as possible. Well, um, you know, it was an interesting, or I thought it's kind of interesting, but it's not really my thing or something like that. And then she goes into my uh, my phone, which I had on me. Uh, it was a Japanese phone. And at the time it, was, it had, you know, nice color photographs, which was kind of, you know, I don't know, we're talking six or seven years ago. It was still pretty interesting back then. But she was wondering why I didn't have so many photos on my phone. It was just a few. And I'm like, well, it's a new phone. And so there was all that rigmarole. And she was, oh, who's this? Who's this? Looking at the photos on my phone. Well, it's my friend. And I just took a picture of my friend. What is this? Like, what, what am I supposed to say? But anyway, I knew it was all part of the game. So I'm just playing along with it. Yes, yes, answering the questions. And then they find my diary in my, uh, in my bags. And she takes it out and she starts leafing through my diary and uh, reading bits and pieces of it, as they do, I guess. And at the time, I remember thinking, this is so bizarre. Like, I don't know what my rights are. Do I have the right to say to this customs official, no, you can't say that. You can't, you can't read this. You can't look at that. Or this is my private stuff. Why are you reading it? But then I'd look like a terrorist. And of course, I was still in the pre-Corbett Report mindset. So I didn't really know what to do in that situation. I didn't know that it was going to be a problem or, or anything of that sort. So I'm just thinking, well, this is really bizarre. Until she says, hmm, I'd like to take a photocopy of this. Is that all right? And again, I'm thinking, well, what does that mean? You're going to go and take a photocopy of this? So... I'm assuming somewhere in the uh, in the records of that uh, that visit, I guess the Canadian government has on file a photocopy of some of my diary. So I figured if the Canadian government has some of this, why don't I share it with you? And I thought it was particularly funny, not in a ha-ha way, obviously, but particularly funny that one of the entries in my diary specifically, I thought might have caught their eye if they were looking hard enough. So I'll read it for you because it's... Uh, <clears throat> well, it was something that I wrote at the time it's more metaphorical or, or sort of a grand abstraction because I have, I had and have harbored in the past grand ideas that I'd become sort of a literary sensation. I always wanted to be a writer. So, you know, the type of pretentious literary the di diary that I kept uh, for many years and still occasionally write in. But anyway, um, this one was from, uh, I guess this is the 12th of June or no, that would be December 6th, 2005. And I wrote this as on a whim as something that occurred to me that particular day. Never trust anyone who dreams of a glorious death, a sacrificial death, a death that will somehow justify a life. Or, to put it another way, never trust anyone. Starry-eyed dreamers, all of us, facing the firing squad of a tyrant without a blindfold, staring them in the eyes and telling them to aim for the heart so that future generations will be able to decode the true meaning of this moment or to rush into the burning building at the cry of an infant never to return, or to stare down a mugger with a knife, look him right in the eye and tell him, you're not afraid to die. Cancers born from guilt, accidents of bad conscience, the most selfless of sacrifices, the needless taking of lives, always of finding, always of finding meaning in that which is nothing but the end of meaning. The fetishization is the danger. 
we are all suicide bombers. Dun, dun, dun. So you can see how a customs official at an airport might find that to be an interesting statement that they'd want to take a photocopy of because I must clearly be a terrorist. So as I say, I'm sure the Canadian government has some file on me somewhere. Um, probably for the Corbett Report, if for nothing else, but um, that must be part of it. All right, Susan, thank you for your question. I hope that answers it. Let's move right along. Next up, we have an email in from Tom A., who writes, Do you have advice, financial or otherwise, for the economic downturn? Okay, excellent question. Again, another question that I receive quite frequently. And once again, I would very much uh, encourage people to subscribe to my weekly newsletter, which includes the editorial that I write for the international forecaster, Bob Chapman's old newsletter, which I am still writing the editorial for each week. So that appears in my subscriber newsletter each week. Once again, you can subscribe for 100 Japanese yen a month or, uh, or more, if you so choose. And, uh, and in that newsletter, I'm often covering financial and economic news and information and things that people can do in a positive sense to prepare themselves for the economic downturn or the economic collapse. Um, well, either way, uh, which I think we can all see coming. Uh, but in terms of uh, some of the information that I've put out there on this, uh, well, you could turn, for example, to Corbett Report Radio 235, which was specifically entitled Solutions for the Economic Collapse. Or I recently had a uh, series on the eye-opener uh, talking about uh, the alternative currency solution, and I did a few different videos on alternative currencies and how that can be an important uh, answer, a solution to what's happening in terms of the economic situation. Uh, in terms of solutions more generally, uh, including economic solutions, but other types of solutions as well, I would suggest that people type the word solutions into the search bar on CorbettReport.com and you will find literally dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of articles and videos and interviews and podcast episodes on the subject of various solutions. Everything from 3D printing to uh, building communities uh, to organic gardening, all of these types of topics that I think are important and are the types of solutions that we have to be coming together to talk about, um, not only in terms of the economy, but of course in terms of the political situation and society at large, etc. So, uh, once again, uh, the search bar on CorbettReport.com is your friend. If I've talked about something, you'll probably be able to find it through there with the uh, judicious use of keyword searching. Moving right along, we have an email in this time from Alex who writes, Given all the questionable history being taught in schools and colleges, which tend to either omit or more often rewrite key events, is there a recommended book or perhaps a series of readings that you could recommend for self-study? Thank you very much for that question, Alex. Once again, this is a question I get an awful lot from people in various different permutations. Sometimes people are asking about specific subjects or specific authors or that type of thing. And it's a question I've often received and don't really feel I've ever been able to provide a good response to because I, get, I perhaps overthink things and I think, well, there are incredibly important things that everyone should read. Everyone should have at least some sort of grasp of what Carol Quigley was writing about, for example, or I could recommend the books of Anthony Sutton and etc. etc. But it's very difficult to think of what what is the reading list that will be the reading list that will help everyone out. And it's so extremely difficult to do because of course these types of things are obviously so dependent on everyone's own 
background and where they're coming from, the issues that matter to them, the, the ways of putting the information across that work best for them, etc., etc. All the types of things I generally talk about when I talk about the problem of trying to wake people up to this information in a general sense. But it has just struck me in the last couple of days, thinking about the answer to this question, that uh, perhaps it, 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 I resisted using this as an answer because it sounds like something of a cop-out or something, but it isn't a cop-out. It really isn't. Insofar as I would suggest, well, how about my podcast series as a reading list or as a study list of some sort? Because as, as I'm sure you all know by now, my podcast episodes have a complete documentation list sorted by time index to uh, all sorts of information, videos and uh, documentaries and interviews and podcasts and, uh, and reading books and, uh, and articles, etc., Every single podcast episode has tons and tons of documentation like that, and I, I'd like to think that if someone was serious about taking a, a self-study course on one of the topics that I was covering on the podcast, that even my even one hour of my podcast, one podcast episode, could preoccupy someone for a week as they start to check out all the different sources and and then start, of course, to develop their own questions and their own inquiries and start to develop that self-study. So I honestly do th like to think that the podcast can be used, of course, not as a be-all and end-all and an ending point to study on any of the given topics, but as at least a starting point to study on these topics. So that is truly what I'm trying to create, especially with my podcast, of course, with my videos, with my interviews, with my radio show, etc. as well. But I think specifically the podcast is probably the best at this. So for example, if you were extremely keen on studying, oh, I don't know, something that I've covered recently, something like 3D printing or, or something like that. The, the 3D printing podcast that I came up with, I think would be a good starting point for that search. And you could branch out from some of the links that I provided to take a look at some of the, the people that, that I, I pointed to or some of the articles, etc. And then that can start you on your own search, etc. So generally speaking, I, I truly do recommend my own podcast. That's what I hope it will be, is that type of educational resource that people can use as the basis for some type of self-study. So once again, thank you very much for that, Alex, and for helping me to articulate for myself what it is that I think is a good answer to that question. All right, moving along, we have a, another email in from Philip O, who writes, I am very interested in a video by you explaining how you keep track of and organize what must be a voluminous flow of information via organizing RSS feeds, re -F Firefox live feeds tab, etc. Well, okay, thank you very much, Philip. And for people out there that don't know, this is a follow-up to something that I mentioned on the penultimate episode of uh, Corbett Report Radio, um, episode 276. I was talking about the ways to to organize information, and I was talking about the Firefox Live Feeds tab that I use myself to organize uh, different information. So uh, I was talking about it at the time, and I, suggest, I said I would make a video about this if people were interested. I did get a few emails in asking me to do that, including yours, Philip. So let's go to the desktop, and I will show you exactly what I'm talking about. Okay, here we are on my desktop. As you can see, I have my version of Firefox open to CorbettReport.com. And uh, I, as I say, I'm using Firefox. I use Firefox because I like it better for security and privacy reasons than such things as uh, Internet Explorer or Safari or Google Chrome. 
But uh, having said that, of course, I have a lot of different extensions and applications and add-ons on here, like NoScript, and I have Rekai-chan over here, um, Better Privacy, Adblock Plus, things like that to make a slightly better browsing experience. I've talked about some of those programs before on the radio program, so you can go into the archives for that. But today we're looking at the live bookmarks feed, which is an extremely handy uh, thing for me to have because this is a great way of keeping track of lots of different websites. So if you haven't seen this before, right here you have all of the live bookmarks. For example, I have Blacklisted News, Boiling Frogs Post, Zero Hedge, Asia Times Online, StratRisks.com, Climate Depot, Global Research, Land Destroyer Report, XSKF, Intel News, AP Perspective, Diplomat, Market Watch, CBC, and the Eurasia Review. And for those who are new to all this, basically, if I want to see what the latest headlines are on Blacklisted News, I just click here. I Oh, I can see all of the latest headlines that are up on Blacklisted News, and I want to say, oh... Uh, three ways Obama carried Bush's tyrannical torch in just one week. That looks interesting. Click on that. You get the article from Blacklisted News. So there it is, and you can read through it. Or, of course, you can just browse through at a glance all of the headlines from all of the different websites. And within a couple of minutes, you can have literally hundreds of headlines to choose from. Well, what do I want to look at? And uh, basically, in a few minutes, I can decide what uh, what some of the biggest headlines I should be looking at are. So this is a very, very handy feed for me to be keeping my eye on multiple news sources and a lot of websites that I like to keep up to date with. And actually looking through this list, it strikes me that I do not have anything from the media monarchy kingdom on here. And that is, uh, well, that has to be corrected. So why don't we correct that right now? And I'll show you how to add a new live bookmark feed. So let's go over to foodworldorder.blogspot.jp. I'm sure it's probably different for you guys, depending where you are in the world. Here we are on foodworldorder.com. And, uh, of course, I'm sure you've all seen this website. But what we want to do is subscribe via the live bookmark feed. So we'll go over to the RSS symbol and we'll click on that. It will bring up the feeds tab and we want Food World Order specifically. So we browse down to Food World Order. We click on that feed. And then up here we have subscribe to this feed using live bookmarks. Well, that sounds like exactly what we want to do. So we just click subscribe now. We get this window. What do we want to call this? That's a very long name. Why don't we just call it FWO? We'll subscribe and lo and behold, FWO is now in my live bookmarks feed. So I can see, oh, there's a new video of Frankenfish one step closer to the market. Something we've talked about on New World next week a number of times. So I can go there and watch that video. So that's all there is to it. Extremely simple, but it's extremely useful for me to keep my eye on multiple websites and to really organize a lot of information. And as I'm sure you can appreciate, I go through a lot of news and information on a daily basis, so it's really handy for me to be able to keep tabs on everything like that. All right, let's move along to the next question, which we have in from Dustin O. And he writes, have you considered opening a Google Plus account? It's similar to Facebook, but with more and better options. I have subscribed to your YouTube channel, but I think if you write columns and articles, you could use Google Plus to further extend the reach of your message. All right, thank you for that, Dustin. Uh, the short answer is no, I don't have a Google Plus account, and I am absolutely certainly not considering getting one in the anytime in the near future or the foreseeable future. I am definitely walking a tightrope, uh, I suppose, as someone who is publicly very, very much against everything that is represented by the consolidation of 
of control on the internet via the various platforms that are offered for free by these wonderful services like Google and Facebook and Instagram and all of these other services that provide just such wonderful social media opportunities for people and yet are absolutely the real representatives of where I think the, the corporatocracy and the oligarchy wants to take the internet in the future, which is a completely controlled tied down system whereby they will be able to erase anything they want at any time. And people already know about that from Facebook, for example, which has had numerous examples over the years of people not being, of, of certain links and certain topics and, and posts being deleted and count, accounts being taken down uh, because uh, they violated Facebook's terms. And of course, as we saw recently with a massive takedown of accounts related to 9-11 to figures uh, in the 9-11 movement, it could be anyone for any reason at any time. They could come along and say, that violates our terms of service, so you're going down. So I absolutely do not recommend people ever join any of these uh, these outlets that are controlled without specifically knowing it, what it is you're doing and without specifically doing it for a purpose. Now, that's so that's my, my public position, and I really do adhere to that. But having said that, I am on YouTube. I do have a Twitter account, for example. So what hypocrisy, right? Well, it is. To a certain extent, it is. And I, I do agree with that. But it is my way of trying to get this message out. I genuinely am trying to get this message out. So I am I am ambivalent here. I'm stuck in between these two positions. I absolutely do wholeheartedly recommend people boycott these services, and yet I'm using these services to get people thinking about these issues. So I have caved in. I do have a Twitter account, and it has garnered, I think, some traffic to the website. So that's for the good. More people are getting the message. And yet now I'm linked into yet another service that is, I think, the exact opposite of what we want to achieve on the internet. I guess the question is not simply, well, then should we just boycott the internet altogether? The question is, what do we do with what the internet represents? And what can we bring together as a community to uh, to represent an alternative to Facebook and Google Plus and Twitter and Instagram and all these these highly centralized sources that can control so much of what we do online? And a potential answer that I've come across recently via Adam versus the Man, I'd never heard about it before, but it's called Diaspora. And it's apparently a, a, a sort of distributed uh, online social media platform in which people can host their own or their, their own... Uh, host their own platform in a, in a certain sense. I haven't looked deeply into this and I haven't set up an account yet. I might in the future. So if anyone out there has some experience with Diaspora and can speak to its uh, its strengths or weaknesses, it certainly does sound very, very much better than a Facebook or a Google, which can censor you at any time. In this case, you completely 100% own and control your information. You host it yourself or you can host it with other people if you trust them. And uh, you can choose if, when, and how you share anything at all, or if you share anything at all. So that's the type of system that we can set up as an alternative to this uh, Google plus Facebook universe that's being constructed around us. So short answer, no, I'm not planning on starting a Google plus anytime in the future. I do not have a Facebook and I'm not planning on starting one anytime in the future. So anything you see on Google plus or Facebook claiming to be Corbett report related is completely someone else. It has nothing to do with me. Um, there's also another Corbett report that goes around on Twitter, I believe. So that's also not me. Everything that is officially me, you can find on the Corbett Report homepage. 
All right, thank you again for that question. Let's move on to a question from Greg B. And uh, as a little background to this, Greg B. and I have corresponded several times in uh, the last few months and, and over the course of uh, longer. We've corresponded about the, the global warming myth, which I certainly do not adhere to, and I believe Greg B. is uh, more skeptical on that point of why I don't adhere to the science of global warming. And so we've been back and forth on that point several times, and he asks this question, are there any environmental problems you think are legitimate? All right, that's an, a good question, and one that I hope that I've been clear about on the podcast before, but uh, for people who haven't heard episode 92 of my podcast, Environmentalism is Corporate Controlled, in that podcast, I quite specifically tried to make the point that there are very real environmental dangers, but they are very much being masked and clouded over and obscured behind this hysteria and panic over CO2, carbon dioxide, driving the climate, or so they want us to believe. And I've talked, of course, a lot about carbon dioxide and why I do not believe it is the devil gas that people talk about, and I will continue to talk about that in the future. In fact, I have another series that will be coming out shortly that will get much, much more into that. But in the meantime, what are some of the environmental problems we really do have to deal with? Well, for example, I've talked at great length about genetically modified organisms and the potential threat to the biosphere, the very genome of the planet that they represent. And meanwhile, more and more environmentalists are sanguine and happy about, well, it's, it's a good established science now. It's GM products. They're good. They're going to help feed the poor, etc., etc., even though that it itself is a lie, which I've exposed on several occasions. But uh, just another example that came across um, my my uh, my radar recently was this uh, article from S uh, Slate.com. Leading environmental activists' blunt confession: I was completely wrong to oppose GMOs. So once again, the contro corporate controlled environmental movement is there to distract us from real problems like genetic modification and towards uh, made up phony panic problems that can steer us into false solutions like the carbon dioxide myth. Another example would be, of course, the poisoning of the, the uh, certainly of large parts of north, northeastern Japan and, uh, and of course, the, the, the northern hemisphere more generally in terms of fallout from the nuclear radiation from Fukushima, from Chernobyl. Of course, nuclear power does represent a very large potential threat to the future habitability of the entire planet, and one that I think we could all safely say is a large environmental threat, unless you happen to be part of that controlled corporate environmental movement, in which case nuclear power is A-OK -okay hunky-dory, even, not only even when the uh, nuclear power plants melt down like in Fukushima, but especially when they melt down, because then we can see just how safe nuclear power really is. And I'm looking at George Mombiot for this, the fake environmentalist who talks about uh, why Fukushima made me stop worrying and love nuclear power. Um, we could go on, and uh, I, I do at great length on the website talking about food and health-related issues on a frequent basis with James Evan Pilato on New World Next Week. We cover all sorts of food and environment stories about real environmental problems, uh, fluoridation of the water supply, the, uh, the types of chemicals and processes that they use to prepare our foods, etc., etc., etc. There are very real environmental problems on this planet. Man-made CO2 is not one of them. All right, let's move on to uh, a, another question that I get quite frequently. Uh, this one from Ryan N. And speaking of Fukushima, he writes, James, I know you live in Japan. I'm planning to visit Tokyo in the spring with my girlfriend. We'll be staying in that area for a week and traveling to Osaka before we leave. Do you have any advice on protection from the radiation at Fukushima? 
All right, excellent question. As I say, I often get this question in through the website as people know that I live in Japan, so they want to find out about radiation, etc. It's a big topic and there's a lot to think about and I certainly wouldn't try to dissuade anyone from coming to Japan or persuade them to come to Japan. Obviously, that's a decision you have to make for yourself. But if you have decided on it and you are going to be here for a week or two, I think really the the main concern for you would be the food supply. And personally, I can tell you what I am personally doing. I am not eating seafood at, at this point unless I know exactly where it's coming from and it's not coming from anywhere near Japan. So that's that's uh, a pretty... Uh, well, difficult policy to to enact, unfortunately, because of course that means we can't eat any of the wonderful seafood here in Japan, but it is absolutely the biggest threat, um, I think, in terms of radiation, especially because so much of the fallout from Fukushima went directly into the ocean. So certainly anything coming from that eastern Pacific uh, seaboard of Japan is going to be at risk of being contaminated. Um, In terms of other foods and uh, how to gauge what to buy, well, I actually recently for my subscriber newsletter, again, I had a subscriber-only video uh, talk is showing people a, a Japanese supermarket and talking about how myself and my wife source what products are coming from what part of Japan or what part of the world and how we decide what to eat and what not to eat. So any anyone who is interested in that, once again, you can subscribe to the, the uh, newsletter. And if you subscribe before uh, Saturday, you will be getting the previous edition of the newsletter, which has that video in it. So you can watch that video. Um, so that, that's the short answer. I think food is the, the biggest problem, especially if you're just going to be here for a week or two. I obviously wouldn't be recommending any trips anywhere into that northeastern region, anywhere near Fukushima. But again, if, if you've made that decision, that's up to you. Okay, next we have an uh, email from Roger G. And this is a, another question I get quite a lot. This one reads, have you read Dr. Judy Wood's book, Where Did the Towers Go?, What caused steel, steel reinforced concrete, office furniture, filing cabinets, computers, toilets, basins, and people to turn to dust? Why were so many cars so strangely toasted? All right, thank you for that, Roger, and to all the others who have written in on this subject. Of course, I am familiar with Dr. Judy Wood and her work. I am not a proponent of it or an adherent to it. I think she's made basic uh, flaws in physics, for example, with her billiard ball analysis, which uh, provided examples of flagrant violations of conservation of energy and momentum, which wouldn't uh, get you past a high school physics course, let alone uh, anything approaching a resemblance of reality in scientific analysis. I think that if anyone who watches for example, Dr. Greg Jenkins' interview with Dr. Judy Wood sees that she certainly did not come out the better of the two in that interview and uh, can't, can't even really seem to provide a coherent view of what she's talking about or the physical principles thereof. And that, uh, for example, Hutchinson effect has been debunked over and over and over. So I absolutely do not think that there's any valid reason for believing that Dr. Judy Wood is right on any of the things that she's talking about. And uh, also, I should mention the toasted cars, for example, have been repeatedly shown to have, uh, for example, the toasted cars on FDR Drive, which uh, people have gone to absurd lengths to try to, to explain away. All of this is by way of background of saying that there's absolutely nothing convincing that I've seen in her arguments. However, having said that, I'm also very skeptical about the, uh, for example, the thermitic materials paper that was uh, produced by Dr. Niels Herod et al. I think there are some scientific questions that have been raised in the last year or two about that paper that I have not seen properly addressed. So I'm going to be keeping my eye out on that. But as I've said over and over and over again on my podcast, I am 
perfectly happy to let all of the uh, the people who want to continue their internecine squabbles over the demolitions of the buildings and to concentrate on that 100% as if 9-11 truth equals the buildings. People who want to do that are absolutely, I'm happy to let them do that. And I will continue to concentrate on all of the other aspects of 9-11, which no one else ever talks about anymore for some reason. No one talks about air defenses. No one talks about uh, the money trail. No one talks about the so-called alleged hijackers, where they came from, their connections, etc., etc. No one talks about all of the background information that makes 9-11 9-11. They only talk about the buildings. I don't talk about the buildings as much anymore because, for one, I'm not a physicist. I don't claim to be one. I'm not a scientific... I'm not an, I'm not an engineer... I'm not an architect, so I'll leave that to other people to squabble over. I will talk about the issues that I'm more interested in, and Dr. Judy Wood is not one of them. Um, let's move on. Finally, we have a email in from David C., and he writes, I've been trying to either verify or dispute whether the Amish shooter Charles Carl Roberts IV was on SSRI drugs. Can you tell me if there is authenticity to the claim and where I would find it? All right. Thank you for the question, David. That is a good question. I... I... I, I will be completely 100% upfront right at this moment as I'm talking to you. I have no clue whatsoever of whether or not this shooter was on drugs or not. But I think that's actually a good place to be in to answer this question because along the lines of uh, teach a man to fish, why don't we actually go through the process together of what I would do if I was looking to the, for the answer to this question? And hopefully this will help other people if they're uh, similarly looking for answers to questions like this. I'll just show you what I do and uh, you can you can go from there. So let's go back on the desktop. Okay, here we are back on the desktop, and this time we have this email in from David C. I've been trying to either verify or dispute whether the Amish, Amish shooter Charles Robert Carl Roberts IV was on SSRI drugs. Can you tell me if there is authenticity to the claim and where I would find it? All right, this is literally what I would do if I was going to try to find some answer to this question. I would highlight that and control copy, and then I go up to my start page, uh, part of the Firefox. This is the search engine. I've got it set to startpage.com so they don't track me. Control paste, Carl, Charles Carl Roberts IV. Oh, uh, that's going to give me, of course, lots of information about him, but not about SSRI drugs. I should have added SSRI. So we put that in. Charles Carl Roberts, 4th SSRI. Was the Connecticut shooter Adam Lanza on hardcore drugs of some sort? Um, Mark David Chapman and Carl, Charles Carl Roberts, the 4th, the Amish school killer, were all on some form of SSRI. This is from naturalsociety.com by our friend Anthony Gucciardi. So I know he doesn't just make claims up. Let's open it up and take a look. And uh, I don't know where that part of the story is. So I'm going to hit Control F and I'm going to look for... Uh, so you can see this down here, Charles, ah, there it is, Charles Carl Roberts IV, and it highlights it up here, so we're all, all on some kind of, on some form of SSRI, psychotropic pharmaceutical drugs. There's no link there, so there's no nothing to back it up. It could be just some wild-eyed, crazy person on the internet making up a claim for all I know. Of course, this is Anthony Gucciardi, who I have interviewed, and I know he is a good researcher, so I don't believe he's just made it up, but he hasn't provided any source, so I might as well treat it as if it is a made-up claim. So let's keep looking. We have uh, prisonplanet.com link, was Fort Hood Killer on psychotropic drugs. We open that one up, we take a look, well, we're going to, again, look for Charles Carl Roberts IV. Here it is. And uh, we're all on SSRI psychotropic drugs. Uh, no link for that. We do have one for the Red Lake High School shooter, NewYorkTimes.com. 
Well, no, no luck there. So next one, Infowars. Well, that's basically the same as Prison Planet. Uh, Forums.nurse.com. This, uh, just looking at the preview here, Charles Carl Roberts IV, the Amish school killer, were all on SSRI. This is the exact same uh, wording as the the Prison Planet article up there. So I'm assuming it's just copy and paste job. I'm not going to bother clicking on that quite yet. We might come back to it. Live leak, psychotropic drugs again and again. Mark David Chapman were all on psychotropic drugs. Okay, so what we've got here is we've got a bunch of people who are copying and pasting the Prison Planet article. They're all using the exact same wording in the exact same order, so we can tell that this is absolutely all of them are just a copy and paste job. So we will probably not find the answer in there. But we do have something interesting here. Charles Carl Roberts IV, the Amish killer, SSRIs. This is from Yelp.com. Let's uh, take a look. Uh, my initial search quickly led to some more frightening blah, 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 committed by people on antidepressants. It just says Carl Scott Roberts was on SSRIs. No link, nothing to back it up. Um, again, more of the copy and paste job from the Prison Planet article. Copy and paste, copy and paste, copy and paste, copy and paste. Uh, list of school shootings in the United States from Wikipedia, and this has something obviously about Charles Carl Roberts IV and SSRIs. Let's see if they are related. SSRI, we'll type that into Control F. SSRI use. Well, this is an interesting and handy list. You see, I wouldn't have ever known about this unless I specifically searched for this. So, for example, we have, uh, yes, 1999, Columbine. They had SSRIs. Uh, March 21st, Red Lake High School, SSRIs, yes. And that's it. That's all that Wikipedia is saying. Of course, that doesn't mean that that's all there is. Of course, Wikipedia could be lying or mistaken or inaccurate or any number of things. But at any rate, they're not going to give us any more information about Charles Carl Roberts IV. This was October 2nd, 2006 in Pennsylvania. So we'll just, just to be absolutely sure, October 2nd, 2006, we'll go check that one out. Pennsylvania Amish school shooting. It doesn't say there were SSRIs involved. We'll search the Wikipedia page for SSRI. There's nothing of that sort. How about antidepressants? Nope. Nothing coming up in the control F search for that. So we're not finding anything there. Let's go back to the search results. Um, Ohio school shooting subject suspect not well. Uh, That might be something. Let's take a look. And we will again look for Charles. Oh, it's not even on there. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes there's some older version of the uh, the article that's cached or something. It's picking up something in the comments about the uh, school shooter from Pennsylvania when it's actually not there. Mm, just looking through these results, 99% of them are copy-pastes from Prison Planet and... The effect of antidepressants on the labor market. That's interesting, but it has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Uh, no. Well, on the first page of results, anyway, I find absolutely nothing that would show that there is any proof to this claim yet. I would assume we're going to have to start doing some deep searches for uh, specifically articles that were coming out in the wake of that shooting. I think a lot of these articles are from much more recently that are talking 
retrospectively about all of those shooters who were on SSRIs. So they're just going to give a list of shooters. They're not going to say say specifically where that information is coming from. So we'd have to go over into advanced search and we would have to start playing around probably with the, uh, the date um, and or with uh, perhaps excluding phrases we can do without the words. So for example, we could exclude the name Watson to get those Paul Joseph Watson copy paste jobs out of the way, perhaps, or something like that. So it would take a little bit more searching. At any rate, this is literally the process I would go through if I was going to establish the claim of whether or not this this particular shooter was on SSRI drugs, and I would continue on from here. I don't think we need to continue with this too much more. You guys can continue on your own, and of course, let me know what you find. But uh, but that's the long and short of it, and once again, it's uh, it's not a really difficult process, and the, the more you do it, the better you get at it. So once again, I recommend StartPage because they don't track you like Google, or at least they claim not to. So there you go. All right, folks, that's going to do it for today. Uh, Several uh, emails in there. Uh, Once again, I'd like to thank everyone who does write in through the contact form or tweets me or leaves comments in the videos. I I do appreciate it. And as I say, this video series, uh, this podcast series will be coming out on an occasional basis. It was originally going to be audio, but, uh, but since we've looked at several videos today, I thought it was important to actually see this rather than just listen to it. So I'm not sure if in the future this will be audio or video or both or neither, or I have no idea. But Uh, But at any rate, this will be a forum for you guys out there to ask your questions, and I'll do my best to provide answers. So on that note, thank you all for listening. Take care.